0: The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult
1: their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guests are filmmakers Elaine Velasquez and Barbara Bernstein. Elaine and Barbara have been creating film and radio documentaries for over 35 years, Their award-winning work has been broadcast on public television and radio, screened at international film festivals, and distributed through broad grassroots networks. Barbara is also host of Locust Focus here on KBOO every Monday morning. Barbara and Elaine are here today on Health Watch to talk about their new documentary, Gaining Ground, which tells the stories of two rural farms in Oregon and one urban inner-city farm in Richmond, California. Stories that engage questions of health and nutrition, ecology and corporate accountability, issues of race, class and gender, all while following some of the most inspirational people who, despite being confronted with skepticism, sometimes even within their own families, are not only dreaming of a different model of food and food justice, a different model of community and community transformation, a different way of creating opportunity in places with very little, but are creating these things on the ground right now today. Welcome to Health Watch, Thank Elaine you. Velasquez and Barbara Bernstein. Thanks. Well, let's start out with, with how you both decided on the locales. Uh, what was, how, was that an obvious choice at the beginning, these two rural farms and, and the inner city farm that you chose in Oregon and California?
0: We found Vicki at Sun Gold, Vicki and Chris, her son, at Sun Gold Farms fairly easily. But we, we did a lot of filming and searching around to try and find our people. Mm -hmm. And Barbara did most of the locating of these uh, wonderful people.
2: Actually, after we chose these three farms, after interviewing people, we must have interviewed about 15 different farms and urban agriculture programs, uh, it hit me one day, we found a large farm that's transitioning uh, from growing grass seed and wheat, which is about the furthest from food, or this is commodity wheat, to growing local grains, which is a really important part of having a sustainable viable local food system. And then we had the medium-sized farm, which is Sungold Farm in Bearboard, Oregon, which is tr- was transitioning or had already transitioned from being a commodity dairy to growing uh, 100 varieties of fruits and vegetables for local markets. And they do all direct marketing through CSA and uh, farmers markets. And then the uh, hyper-local level of an urban agriculture program that was growing food for a community in Richmond, California, which is a classic food desert. I mean, they have no good food that they have access to anywhere within walking or even close driving distance. So it was kind of serendipity the way it happened. But it, we basically found the farms through, uh, well, Vicky, I'd actually met Chris Hurdle several years ago at uh, the Interstate Farmers Market, which no longer exists. I was doing another radio documentary about urban farming. And uh, thought that they, they grow some of the best produce I'd ever eaten, and we ran into Vicky at an event that f- Friends of Family Farmers sponsors every year or every other year, the Lobby Day at the, the state capital here in Salem. And there's a little farmers market that's set up in the rotunda of the state capital, and there we met Vicky Hurdle and Chris and Elaine was very much taken with Vicky. She was very mm-hmm. articulate. We knew that she was going to have to be in the film. Uh, Want to talk about somehow we met the other people? Well.
0: Um, b- I think we heard about uh, Willow, Coberly, Stalford Seed Farms and Green Willow, Greens, Willow Coberly and Harry Stalford. First from um, Harry McCormick, who started Oregon Tilth and um, they weren't in the film yet. And then there was a little luck. We had one interview with Willow and I wasn't sure. And then we asked to also interview Harry, the farmer who's a grass seed farmer who was anti-organic growing anything in the valley. Uh, I was a little afraid of them, but they they were great. I mean, when somebody is really good on camera, honest, and they can, it's, it's got to do with some ability to to really open themselves up and you can... Empathize with them, and they were very strong. And then Barbara located. Uh, we wanted to do it in a city, and Barbara located Ro- about Doria Robinson. And uh, one conversation, it was obvious this woman is brilliant and articulate, and sh- she led us in to their world, which is basically a community of color with a Chevron refinery over their town, in Richmond, California, and they've got they're growing organic. Produce and teaching the kids and in the schools.
1: Well, it really is a, this great um, compare and contrast of locations. But what really makes the the movie Gaining Ground a oh entertaining and engrossing film are the personalities. And I just strangely, even though at the beginning I felt this sorts sort of aversion to Harry, the grass feed f- seed farmer, um, he he grew to be the crucial character in, in a lot of ways in the film. Um, and and part of it is he 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 represents at the beginning something that I didn't know the how little of food is actually grown in in the Willamette Valley. So you were talking about grass seed for for golf courses or or wheat that apparently is mostly exported to China for noodles. And he was the sort of the epitome of of this sort of farmer with conventional high input fertilizer, lots of pesticides, and super skeptical. And skepticism seems to be a a major theme in this movie that's getting overcome in both Richmond and in Oregon. But tell us a little bit about the dynamic he has with his wife and what she wants and how he drags his heels at at every every little move that – that she wants to make on the farm.
0: Well, Harry is a stubborn, he's kind of cliche, stubborn farmer, as we did it last year, so we have to do it next year. And he, even though his wife is a very strong personality, but she was like 15 years or 13 years trying to get him to change. And she finally asked Harry McCormick to help her talk Harry into it. And he sort of did it. And he transforms over the period of the film. I mean, we filmed for
1: at least four years following these stories. Watching his trajectory is really remarkable. Well,
2: actually, when we first uh, interviewed Willow, we we interviewed Willow and her mother back in November of uh, 2011. And They were talking about Harry like he was a bit of an ogre. He was, like, really a problem in terms of trying to get him to go along with what they were wanting to do. And he was, well, in the beginning of the film, Willow says, he offered me 11 acres on a 10,000-acre farm to start our experiment with this wonderful expression she has of, like, sort of a sardonic expression. But... So it was still kind of an issue, and Harry McCormick had described him like this big guy. Harry McCormick is a little guy, and Harry Stalford is a big guy. And the way that Harry M- McCormick described Harry Stalford, we thought, oh, he's going to be this cliché heat farmer, and he's going to be the, bad, the the villain in the film. He's the person we're trying to overcome. And, and actually, we weren't so much when we met Willow, we realized, no, he's not going to be the villain. But certainly a challenge. And one thing is interesting is he and Elaine hit it off immediately. And I think that Harry Stalford is like a wannabe filmmaker. So we we called him Martin Scorsese, and he would he set up <laughs> he gave us ideas for shots actually, and he drove us around in his flatbed truck, driving all around the the roads around their farm, uh, shooting scenes of the fields and stuff. And he was so cooperative and really engaged in the whole filmmaking process, and. I think we caught him at this really interesting moment where he was starting to really get the power of growing organic food and understanding that this was really an important, it was important for the community, important for the world, and also important for them in order to stay in business, because grass seed and commodity wheat is a really hard way to earn a living.
0: Well, he was very ambivalent. He possibly still is. I mean, they make their main money through grass seed and through Asian wheat and, uh, but the, the uh, organics has taken off incredibly, and they're doing very, very well.
1: In case you just tuned in, we're talking to filmmakers Elaine Velasquez and Barbara Bernstein about their latest food documentary, Gaining Ground. Well, um, another thing that was interesting that relates to this this particular farm and the other Oregon farm is uh, the bread company that reads this article about people who are trying to eat only within a hundred food that's only grown within a hundred miles of of their house, and realizing that in order to do so in the Pacific Northwest or in the Willamette Valley, they had to give up bread and give up beans. That these two uh, crops were pretty absent from the local uh, economy, and that inspired a, a bread company to then look into can we grow wheat in the Willamette Valley? And and Harry at the beginning having skepticism about whether that was possible. <laughs>
2: Well, that's the whole thing, because, I mean, they used to grow uh, hard red wheat, which is the wheat that has high protein that you would use for bread. It used to be grown here in the Willamette Valley, probably up until World War II. And then the, the farming economy here really started shifting from growing food for local consumption, for local canneries, to growing uh, mostly non-food, grass seed, and then growing wheat for export. And the wheat that they grow for export is soft white winter wheat. And Willow says it's probably true that this, the Willamette Valley is not the best place in the world to grow hard red, hard red wheat. Uh, Montana's probably got a better climate for it. But she was lucked upon these seeds that uh, had been uh, developed at Davis, University of California, Davis, by this person who was on her way out and happened to have this whole stock of seeds that she developed for the, the particular climate of the Willamette Valley. So Willow got a hold of these seeds and worked on, they planted a well, it the first year's crop and they lost a lot, but they culled the seeds of the plants that survived and they replanted those. And within a couple of seasons, they were having really successful yields. And that's how you adapt seeds to your local uh, hmm. climate. So I think that that is a real indication of you know, just the kind of tenacity it takes to figure out how to how to how to do something that you that they say you can't do. And certainly the Oregon, Oregon State University's Extension Service and their whole agriculture school is like, oh you can't do this. Well
1: it's also interesting to learn how vital farmers markets and CSAs are to these farmers that there used to be an infrastructure for local food, storage for wheat, canneries, and now there's no infrastructure. So they really do rely as a lifeline f- for farmers markets and CSA uh, subscriptions to keep the, the local food organic economy alive.
0: Well, that's certainly true for Sun Gold. Sun Gold, who was uh, growing, well, they were dairy, dairymen. They got like a certain um, amount of money for their milk, and they had no control over it. And they weren't even sure they could cover their forage bills for the cows because it was some corporation somewhere deciding what, they you know deserved i was told by vicky the price hasn't gone up in i don't know 20 years oh, since it?
2: 1972
0: long, long time anyway and so they were just scraping by but they'd done it generation after generation this is a fifth generation farm and when they were put out of business by deq the cows being too close to the water and they're changing their rules and they started growing vegetables they discovered that they could actually make a really decent living, or for them a decent living, you know, they they actually couldn't go two weeks to California in the winter, mm. something like that. And um, for them, CSA and farmers markets is a lifeblood mm. of their distribution.
2: And Stalford Seed Farms, Green Willow Grains, has done some distribution through farmers markets. They also work actually Willow along with the Willamette Seed and Grain. Bean and seed. I and not quite remember the name of that organization, but there's a, a group of people, of farmers, in uh, the Willamette Valley. I think it's the Willamette Valley Bean and Seed Project. And they started a, a, a thing every year called Fill Your Pantry, and they had it in Shed, Oregon, which is about six miles south of Tangent, where Stafford Seed Farms is located, and where farmers bring in basically storage crops for the winter, and people go and they fill their pantry with potatoes and onions and garlic and all kinds of stuff. And there's going to be – the movement is spread, and now there's going to be a mm-hmm. Fill Your Pantry, I think, next month. It's going to be held somewhere here in Portland. The Friends of Family Farmers is organizing. So this is an, moving the farmer's market and CSA model further to where you're encouraging people to do their own storage, basically, become their own store. Right.
1: That's really interesting. Well, let's, let's switch to Richmond, California. You'd mentioned that Richmond um, – is near the Chevron Refinery. It's near San Quentin Prison. It's an inner city, very different than these these rural farms in Oregon. Tell us about Doria Robinson, uh, what's she all about, and what was she up against when she started envisioning returning to her community after going uh, elsewhere for school um, and starting an edible forest in, a, in an urban garden? Well, well,
0: Doria has this amazing education that she happened to Get in, well, she worked her way through school. She worked her way through high school and through college. It's, you know, the education they were giving in Richmond, California, was like, let like I drive by. She just had had it because it's it's a, it's a it's a violent neighborhood and uh, underserved and just hard, you know. And then the, the refinery is literally right above their town, and uh, Chevron doesn't really take care of them. So anyway, so she she got she she went to this. Uh, a, this really good high school called Maybeck in Berkeley, and then they they gave her a scholarship to Hampshire. And she came back with those skills, and she was born right there in Richmond, and her family's there. And she said, this is the front line, and we've got to hold it. And she didn't start Urban Health, but when she took over about seven years ago, something like that, she does that model of trying to not just—food is a vehicle for them. She wants to feed her community. It's organic, and it's really free, or what they can afford. But she wants to empower the kids. And she teaches in the school how to grow your own food, and teaches them leadership skills. They have a serious responsibility when they come in; they run that program, and they can fail. And she's she's just a, a really brilliant leader. She uh, she understands what it takes, the kind of support and the kind of belief in in these kids, and they're amazing. The staff, her staff, is amazing.
1: I loved watching the watching her, and also watching uh, her her students or people coming up in the program who are now taking on responsibility. It was really amazing to watch them. Well, there's
2: two young people that we focus on. I mean, we could have focused on a number of them because there's quite a few of our staff who are all in their twenties. Uh, she calls them kids. Doria just recently turned 40. <laughs> so she's, a, for us, she's a kid, but uh, they are um, just really inspiring young people. And Tanya, Polito, uh, and, Sherman Dean the two that we focus on and Tanya's story uh, is interesting in a way a little bit reminiscent of Doria's in that she decided to go to the University of California Berkeley and she to her amazement got in and she just graduated last year and her goal was to use the skills and the uh, credibility that she gets from uh, having a BA from Cal to help the community and to be able to write grants and be able to speak to power basically. And when she talks, you sort of see another Doria forming because I mean, this is the kind of, this is, she uses a lot of the same language that Doria has and you can really see how Doria has taught her, but she's also going off in her own direction and being her own person. And it's wonderful to see that.
1: Well, you mentioned that Richmond is a food desert, that there's not a lot of good access to to food. There's a lot of fast food restaurants, a lot of liquor stores. Uh, and a lot of these people getting involved in the urban tilth, their parents aren't familiar with the foods that they're learning to, to grow and cook themselves. So often the education's happening the other way in the generations where someone empowered in the urban tilth is getting access to new knowledge and then sharing it with their parents.
0: Well That's true. It's also uh there's a large, there is a large Central American you know, migrant population, as well as the African Americans coming. Like I think Dora's uh, Louisiana, her people came from Louisiana. They know how to grow foods, and they've forgotten it. They come into this neighborhood with no resources, and they don't see their own work. So it's not just the kids learning something. Maybe reminding the parents, you know, that. To cook greens, or to to get back in touch with their culture. There's a lot of of uh, coming back in all of the stories where they've left. You know, including you know, Vicky's children couldn't be farmers because they were so poor running the milk farm, and then being put out of business. And that they come back. There's a lot of you know re-embracing and and generational. Uh, you know, coming, coming back around, mm-hmm. and the opposite of what Big Ag has been doing to our our food system forever.
1: And was there any uh, challenges around establishing trust or rapport, or access, in, when going to Richmond as outsiders of the uh, from the community?
2: Well, I think that some of it was this first conversation I had with Dory over the phone. I actually saw and her. There was an, a quote from her in an article that I was reading about urban agriculture online. I was just kind of doing research on urban ag at that time, thinking that was going to be an important focus of the film. And this quote was great. And so I Googled Urban Tilt and I got a phone number and I called, actually I emailed her. She emailed me right back, said, let's talk. I call her, she's right there. And as we're talking, we could, I think we felt like we were really sharing the same values. And so that was the beginning of trust. When we got there, uh, I will say that Elaine and I um, in as I had, I've been through Richmond. And I used to live in the Bay Area very briefly, and Richmond was the place you went through from Berkeley to get to the beach, and it was kind of not a place and any, anybody I knew was interested in getting to know. So I had, and I thought of it just being like Chevron pollution and stuff like that, and also it had quite a reputation for being a pretty dangerous neighborhood. So we had all of our equipment, and we were nervous about it. But urban tilth kind of just surrounded us. I mean, the first time we went to shoot uh, one of the guys came up to us and said um, well, basically stood there with us, kind of chaperoning us and telling us, don't go over there. You're cool over here. So when we started filming around the town, we would get volunteers from Urban Tilth to basically be our tour guide. Mm-hmm. And particularly Sherman was one time was the person who went with us and he knew everybody in town and it was just great. And it just, it drew it actually drew people to us because his of his presence in his personality and so we did that for the first few shoots and then actually it was after the fire in 2012 when the chevron refinery had this big fire um and we were thinking we're going to be having the film finished by then and instead it just opened up a whole new chapter of the story and we did a lot of filming after that and at one point we asked doria if she thought it was okay for us to just go off on our own, because we really knew our way around Richmond at that point and felt comfortable with, uh, in a lot of the communities. And she said, it's up to you. You know, It's like the whole thing was up to us all along. It's like when we had a, a, our own comfort level, then we're cool and we won't be the same targets. Also, in the three years that we've been filming, the violence had really gone way, way down. And there had been a couple drive-bys the first time we went to shoot there, and just a week before, by the time after the fire... It was the crime level was going down there as it was going up in the rest of the Bay Area, so it was actually rea- in reality a much safer place
0: to work as well. Mm. The other thing is that as soon as we interviewed Doria, uh, who's African American, she talked to us. I felt like she was letting us into her reality, and that that was so wonderful and so and and it only deepened. I mean, I think we went down there about seven times. We drove down and filmed. Um, and you know she she became as it's it's true with these kind of films where you you take a long time and you don't run in and run out and you form a relationship and more trust
1: well, you mentioned the refinery fire in richmond and i think something that really deepens the film is is we see the success of the transition to org- to organics in oregon and we see all of these young people in richmond uh getting engaged in the in the greenway and in the edible forest in a way that's it's pretty amazing actually and um and yet there're still ongoing struggles so obviously in Richmond they have some struggles that are community focused maybe some vandalism or or other things going on in the farm but then there are things that are outside of their control like the refinery fire which ruined an entire year's worth of crops and then you and in parallel in Oregon the contamination of GMO in the fields which Asia then decided not to buy uh, Oregon wheat, which drove down all the prices for conventional wheat for farmers who had nothing to do with the contamination or weren't even in that part of Oregon. So these tell us a little bit about that shift in tone in the movie and how we, we, we go up, we see this building, and then we also see the reality that um, there's big powers that – uh seemed to also have uh, you know undue influence on on people who are community organizing
0: well they're there our corporations are there monsanto is there chevron is there all the other corporations that are real and we we knew we weren't going to have like a happy ending and we all drive into the sunset um, and it's left and the, the the threats still there monsanto is still there chevron had acted the way that they acted the last time. They had you know, got a very bad safety record. They don't care about the population, or it appears. So that's always been there. And actually, Chevron wasn't mentioned to us until after the fires. It was sort of like the elephant. Hmm. In the, you know, they talked about other things and other challenges, but it wasn't even mes- mentioned until after the fires that there's this thing a block away that has accidents all the time. You know, so it. I don't remember where I'm going from here, but... That's okay. lot, well, Yeah.
2: Actually, I, I, for us, it was a real challenge when the fire happened. We'd gone down the day before the fire uh, to be shooting all week, and we're going to be shooting. They have an apprenticeship program for high school students every summer, and it was going to be the final week in celebration, and we were going to shoot that, and it was going to be the end of the film. And the night before, we were supposed to do our first interview with Doria. We're sitting at our friend's house in Berkeley about to have dinner, and our friend comes in and says, the Richmond Chevron refinery is on fire didn't have much dinner spent most of the time actually elaine was filming the tv screen (laughs) to get the and it was very good footage to get and we were able to get permission to use it Uh, but it totally of course transformed our week there and their lives and and their lives and the shape of the film and interestingly one of the guys in urban tilth came up to me the day after the fire they're having this press conference demonstration in front of city hall in richmond and doria asked us to come film it so we were there he comes up to us and says, well, this certainly is going to give your story more drama. <laughs> and <it's>, this is <laughs> – It and, does. And it does, yeah. And I was something – something. I, was, I didn't want to say that. I thought, this is – that's really kind of uh, insensitive and callous and right. opportunistic. I mean, it's not oh, – this isn't good for us. It isn't good for anybody. But the reality of it is it, it really heightened the issues that we were trying to show all along, both with that and then with the GMO wheat discovery in eastern Oregon, that it was one thing to have people talking in the abstract about – Big Ag and Big Oil. It's a whole different thing when suddenly those stories hit on a personal level. So I I don't want to use the word fortunate because it sounds, it's pretty insensitive. But I think that it gave the film a power that it wouldn't have had if those two events hadn't happened.
0: Well, part of me feels like, you know, being fortunate, being in that place the moment that that fire happened and it was all obviously serendipity, if you want to call it serendipity, but, and at first I was very upset. I was like, I want this to be a positive film. I'm going around and whining. Um, and it was, I just feel like it was meant to be, that story was meant to be told. And we we fortunately were there at the moment that that happened.
1: I still think it is a positive film. Like, I, I believe that somehow it's, 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 a, it's more of a deep and sort of, uh, real positive rather than, uh, I, I, it's not, it's not a, um, just a pie in the sky. It's showing you the real reality, but it's also really projects, uh, I think a vision in both of these places of what could happen, particularly if, if communities are able to push back against some of these, these corporate influences.
0: Well, I think it's inspiring. I think what Dora is doing is inspiring no matter what her obstacles. And the same thing with the uh, Harry and, and Willow and, um, and Vicki at SunGold. It's like they're all like – it's this personal initiative and being willing to try and feed your community healthy local food and dealing with whether you know the
1: obstacles are as they are there. And there are many. And we didn't even touch on many of the little things. Like I know Vicky. And her family was very wary of Portland, uh, even fearful of coming into Portland. And we think of like Portlanders getting to know their farmers, but we also don't think that maybe there's some apprehension the other way around also, and that there's this new way of, of building community. And then the, the, the brief touches you have in the film around returning eco- ecology with animals and birds that come to for, to farms that are more uh, diverse and, and responsibly
2: Actually, as as we are working on the soundtrack in the last few weeks, uh, it makes me uh, realize how much much bird life has returned to the Richmond Greenway because of all the gardening, because we have so many birds on the soundtrack when we're recording in Richmond. So it's not just the farms in rural Oregon where they've really had a return of nature through basically agroecology, but it's also happening in the inner city as well.
1: Well, we're almost out of time, so let's, let's let our listeners w- know when the film is airing, and if there's a way on the website, they can find out about it if they're not in Portland.
2: Well, the sh- we're going to be screening a-, a week from Wednesday, September 30th and October 1st at the Cinema 21. It's 616 Northwest 21st. The show starts at 7 o'clock. There'll be a question and answer panel after the show with Elaine and me, and many of the farmers, including Dory Robinson and some urban till staff who are coming up from, oh, really? coming up from Richmond for the wednesday night screening and uh, then thursday there'll be another screening we also you can go to our website which is www.mediaprojectonline.org and
1: there's a lot of information there well i've been telling everybody about the film i hope people go so thank (laughs) Thank you for being on health watch today
0: thanks david thank you so much
1: we are talking today to elaine velasquez and barbara bernstein about their latest film gaining ground you've been listening to health watch i'm dr david name your host